0: Come with us into the wild wood and find the magic within. Welcome, fellow travellers, into the Wildwood Pagan Podcast with your hosts, myself Lee or Red Oak, and over there is Rev Kai. Hello, hello, and check out the link tree in our description. Let's see, welcome to Lady Kapera, Pamela, Landy, joining us, Cats. Thank you for joining. Welcome, welcome. All right. So today we're having a look at dining with divinity. Big,
1: interesting topic.
2: Food. Food and magic and and spirits and food. and Mm. drinks also. Consuming things.
0: I do like the terms you use, God-eating and Um, God-drinking. Actually,
2: I think Schrodinger's cat's brought that up.
1: Oh, is it? Okay. Mm -hmm. And Twilight Wanderer's here. Hello, hello. Uh...
0: Everything's up, it's Friday evening or Friday morning, depending on where you are. <laughs> Friday time zone, yes. All right. So where are we gonna start with this? Hoosel and red
1: meal. Okay, so
0: if anybody's not familiar with the term Hoosel, it is heathen based. No. Anglo
2: Saxon, I think. It's not used in heathenry very often. Um pretty sure Robin Artisan is the one who brought it into consciousness.
0: I do remember it being mentioned a lot, well, by Robin Artisan obviously, but in Anglo-Saxon terminology, but I'm sure I've seen the mention of Husel in our troth. Um, could be wrong, but uh, sure I honestly
2: don't remember. I, you've read it more recently than I have.
0: Yeah, there was uh, mention of Huzel and, uh, together with Stumble and the bloat, uh, things like that.
2: At least in the heathen circles I've run in, rarely do I find somebody who knows what hoozle is or uses the term Um, pre-2018, somewhere around in there. Um, It's definitely Mm. gotten more common. But I also think the overlap between traditional witchcraft and heathenry has gotten a lot more common since then. Um, mm. Back in the, the earlier time, and, and it's a pretty small split I'm making, um, witches and heathens were separated. Um, I, I think I've told the story a couple of times. When I originally looked into heathenry 20-something years ago, um i found a local heathen someone who was running a kindred and everything and you know went to him as a, a primary source kind of thing like is this for me uh let me ask some questions and see if i want to explore this and and he told me definitively there's no magic in heathenry that's not part of it mm. that's not what we do and that was the turning point for me to say well then okay you know i'm not not interested in pursuing a path that that doesn't involve that. And I Mm. went into traditional witchcraft. Um, Well, I went down a road that eventually led me to traditional witchcraft. Um, But then, the way of things, I I ended up circling back through um, the traditional witchcraft coven I was in. I uh, was invited to a workshop about saith, and then ended up in heathen circles again. And when we ended up in those heathen circles in 2009, 2010, we were the oddballs uh, because we were doing magic and witchcraft and that sort of thing. But we weren't the only ones. There were lots of other little groups all over everywhere in pretty much every community, I think. And now Mm. um, it's no big deal. Uh, Lots of people. Mm. Have an overlap of heathenry and traditional witchcraft, or heathenry in a magical practice. There are lots of heathen magical practitioners, it is not a separate thing at all anymore. So, I don't know um. if that was just like a phenomenon here in the Midwest, in the US, or if that was, uh, you know, a more widespread thing. We're always a little behind the times here in the middle of the country. At least we're behind the coast as far as trends and that sort of thing go. So uh, my dates may seem a little late because of that. But that was definitely an experience. And because of that, terms like hoosel and a lot of the Anglo-Saxon terms, you would only find in the small Anglo-Saxon heathen communities, which were also not the predominant ones. Um, A lot of people think he then means Icelandic um, because Mm. of the Eddas that are Icelandic mythology. And yet there's all this other, um, you know, all these different cultures and mythologies and everything else that fall under that umbrella that aren't that. They don't use the words Woden and Loki and Troya And those are all Icelandic names. So, I think the heathen community has become much more diverse in the last 20 years, especially. And part of that's just, you know, it takes time to explore things. It takes time to do reconstruction. It takes time to uh, translate text and, and explore archaeological discoveries and that sort of thing. Mm. Not way off the track there. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Good uh, uh, background knowledge no, actually. Because, um, I mean, as you said, who's all is Anglo-Saxon? What's well, an Anglo-Saxon word, really? Um, I mean, I've always seen that overlap for years now, actually. Um, because the roads I've been down have always mentioned Germanic or Teutonic. So it's a very large overlap of um, traditions uh, going through heathen Anglo-Saxon and everything else. Um, so um but now coming back to robin artisan he's the one who actually i think as far as i know coined the phrase red red meal um
2: that's my understanding too
0: calling the hoozle
2: the red meal and coining the phrase the red meal and making those connections i'm pretty sure was robin
0: artisan yeah and i like the term because If I remember correctly his interpretation of that was it's the red being the um colour of the living. Um and we're sharing a meal with in some cases the the ancestors. Mm -hmm. Um being the 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 white thread. Remember correct. Yeah, can't remember now. Um but yeah.
2: The the white thread and the red thread are about how you receive tradition. Mm. So the white thread is the divine inspiration or uh tapping the bone talking to the ancestors that sort of thing the red thread is learning from a living person Mm -hmm. and it passed down that way but Mm -hmm. the symbolism of the red in the red meal both in the red drink and in the red bread is connected to that red is the color of blood and therefore the color of life you know, it mm-hmm. is part of the distinction between the living and the dead, or the living and the numinous. However, you're going to understand that whether you know you're uh, communing with your ancestors, uh, or the mighty dead, or you're uh, invoking the sun of Light, or Great Dame Fate, or the Green Lady, or whatever it is, um, the red is the um, the sim- symbolism of living uh, life essence and that imbued into that food that is imbued with many other things in the process and shared all together.
0: Mm. Uh, Rick, Man- Rick law is here. And Hello. Schrodinger's Cats asked um, I was actually curious about the protocols for sharing food with the ICR and the Elba.
1: Usually um,
2: See, usually when uh, offerings are made to the Aesir specifically, most people are offering to Odin, and Odin doesn't eat. (laughs) That's one of the things in the mythology. He only drinks. But he gives all of his food to his wolves, Geri and Freki. Um, So some people, especially uh, people who are very close to their dogs, make offerings to Odin uh, with meat and bread and that sort of thing that knows um they will be given to his wolves um, but uh usually it happens in the context of some bowl or bloat and uh, the offerings are poured into an offering bowl or directly onto a gra- the ground or a tree uh, depending upon what's happening and where um, but you know uh, you take a drink from the horn you do your hails and you pour some out either at the end of a round if there's a bunch of people or after your your toast and your hailing, for example, if you're having um, somebody speak for the group in that process. And uh, the, the beads at the beginning or the, the prayers uh, to the gods, those are usually one per divinity. So you might start with, you know, Thor um, you know, Thor, protect us and and so on and so forth. And I honor you and pour out an offering for Thor into the offering bowl. And then you go on to the next bead and, and, you know, bless our land and our crops and and make our land fertile and so on and so forth. And all of the, the stuff that goes into a good prayer and then pour out for sorry. And then on down the line, complete the symbol or the bloat. You know, if it's a uh, bloat, you'll have the, the minis and the remembrance for the ancestors and pouring out for them at the end of each of that. Um, and if it's a symbol, you'll have whatever your round structure is and pouring out the at the end of each round. And then at the end of all of that, you've got a nice full offering bowl and the ritual is concluded and you may take it out uh, side because some bowl of course has to happen under a roof um, or if it's a, a bloat maybe you're already outside depends on what's going on and you, the godhar will take the offering bowl outside and put it at the hof or the horg or the tree or wherever it is the offerings are given
0: Alright so who's Lord of the Red Mill? What is it? Um, now, this is different to your standard offering to whoever, deities, um, in that you are asking the um, the divine aspects to fill the, the wine and the bread you have, or the food that you have. It doesn't necessarily need to be wine and bread, I suppose. Um, fill that with their, their power, their energy, and then you take it in and you share your own essence with them. So it's got... I've always seen it as like a mingling of your energy with the power of the earth and back again.
2: And see, I wouldn't say that's different from a regular offering, because that's my regular offering.
0: It is very much mine, but when I I say regular offering, what I'm referring to is offering um, something to the spirits, which you then don't consume.
2: Okay, yeah. Yeah.
0: We we did mention this previously, there's a difference between that, because if it's given to them to take the energy from, once they've taken the energy from, it's like eating poop. It's dead. (laughs)
2: Yeah, it's not... Puzzle is communion, as in a sharing. Mm. Puzzle is always a sharing. Whereas Mm. here, the word offering um, is just something you you give Mm. you don't share necessarily in that process but um i'd say that's a pretty um tenuous distinction as i think the word offering is used very very frequently whenever food and um the other world comes up you know um if we have uh bloat, or uh, hoozle. We're always blessing the food beforehand, having divinity imbue the food, um, you know, because only gods can bless in that way. That's part of the the definition uh, for us. And then once the food is blessed, uh, we have our own way uh, of blessing and giving. Sometimes that's the preparation of the food. Um, some that sometimes that's through the offering bowl um, uh, through the mingling of weird and and spit and all of that is involved in there. Um, but we have our own way of putting our energy into that, just like we ask divinity to put their energy into it and bless it. And then everybody eats. Um, everybody eats together in a communal meal and and we offer to divinity to our ancestors to the land spirits to whoever it is we're sharing a meal with but you know everybody gets their own plate we sit down together and we eat
0: Hmm. yeah i mean it can be a really simple i mean my morning um, meditations and prayers take a, a bowl and a glass of water a little bit of water and I do my meditations, I do my prayers, and then I pour a bit into the bowl as a libation, and then I take drink rest. Because um, it's it's that sharing with the the divinities that I've just prayed with and spoken to.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so it can be as simple as that, or it can be a full-on meal. Um, yeah. Like uh, the Hindu practice of prashad um, is literally um, putting the food on the altar... Doing all the prayers and everything out, so that the uh, food gets imbued with the energy of the divinity, and then it gets shared with the community. So,
1: yeah, I think I think every culture actually
0: has this somewhere along the line.
2: Because sharing food with one another is like, I would say, primary, fairly core to civilization and, and bonding. You share food with people you trust. It's literally giving them life. You know, you break bread with family. It's it's a way of trusting. And there's also the poisoning safety aspect in there sometimes. But we feed the people we love. And that doesn't just extend to those with corporeal bodies. That extends to our ancestors. That extends to our gods. That extends to the land whites and the house whites and whatever other category. Of spirits we have that that we work with that we consider family. You know, you're talking about your morning morning offerings. I, I do much the same thing. I have um, two glasses of water that I put on my altar. Not because two is important, but because both of those containers are important. Mm. Uh, and so, yeah, you know, they get fresh, clean water. I take a sip of it also because we're sharing. And um, sharing the liquid and the drink is really important in intermingling spittle, but also that I drink from the same cup kind of thing.
3: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, You know, we are are together. And, you know, I say uh, my morning prayers and put that on the altar and then switch that out every day. So I think that that's not really like it doesn't seem like a lot of protocol to me. It doesn't seem like a lot of formality. Sometimes there's, you know, just a moment of silence and gratitude. And I say, thank you for being my family. I appreciate you. Mm. That's that's all there is that day. Sometimes not. Just depends. So it's not mm. like always a big thing. Production. No. But it can be. Depends on. I think... The more people you have involved, the more production value goes into it. Because mm. if you're all going to get mm. together and 30 of you are going to do this thing, you know, you want to have all of that there and, and do it right, even though there's not a right, a singular right. There's a right for the group of people.
0: Yeah. Well, it's a bit like, um, oh, I've forgotten the guy's name. Um, oh, anyway. The person uh, I'm thinking of, <laughs> um, they said, you know, there's there's a it's a bit of a difference. It was in reference to celebrating the solstices or the Sabbats, um, and it, it's when you're doing it yourself, it's a lot different to to celebrating with a group. It's yeah. kind of like like celebrating your birthday by yourself. You know, it's not really much you can do. <laughs> Right, but if if you're with a group, there's a whole uh, ritual that goes into and everything else. So it's very similar.
2: Again, when it comes to food, gathering to eat together is like a primary Mm. human ritual. I mean, it's the thing that survives through even most secular celebrations of holidays. We need to get together to have a meal. Because it's a time to see everybody and socialize and and eat together. And like, that's it. That's the event. Having the meal together. And that same kind of idea extends to our family in the other world. We want to see them. We want to feed them. We want to just be congenial with them. It's not about asking for favors. It's not about anything more than being family together. and. Sharing food together. And there's, you know, a few things that are slightly different about eating when you don't have a body, but not a lot. Uh, You still get your own plate of food. You still get your own drink. I am quite certain that my ancestors have preferences because every once in a while they ask me to make foods that I don't even eat, but I make them. Um, Sometimes they ask me to make foods that I wouldn't eat, like strange combinations of things uh, mm.
1: but yeah, different tastes <laughs> mm. yeah uh deb is here hello deborah
2: no no oh, i didn't even say anything about the alfar i would say
3: okay
2: there's not really any different protocol for sharing with uh divinity the esir vanir, as the alfar and the other um, various groupings of spirits, you know, put it in an offering bowl. If you have a dedicated offering bowl or an offering plate, those are common too. Say this is mm. for you.
1: You said vanir, and I, I, it reminded me of the
0: one of the movies that we um, uh, reviewed with the Black Hat chat and what's on the telly.
2: Mm.
0: I think, I can't remember, I'm sure they said Vayner. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we were laughing about, yeah. The Vayner. <laughs> the Vayner. Yeah. Um, all right, so I actually did a, a video on my channel recently about um, this topic. And I actually want to put the link to this one in there um, but it was in terms of the Eucharist and Communion that Catholics and the Christians do. And I did it because I've been seeing a growing trend of people carrying on that the Communion or the Eucharist is cannibalistic and vampiric because they are consuming the body and the blood of Christ. And I find it disturbing... Because we have these practices in traditional witchcraft and paganism, wide, broadly, um, and it's being thrown about as this vile practice. Because the Christians are, are being vampiric and cannibalistic. When yeah, you know, it's a bit silly, but and I, I, I got a bit upset about it actually.
2: Yeah, I think that comes from the usual place. I was Christian. I am not anymore. Therefore, all things Christian are bad. I mean, it's, you know, it's part of the process. Uh, Every uh, person with an ego goes through when they change their worldview, that the negation and the um, mm, blaming, rejection, Rejection, that's a good word, of the previous Mm. worldview. Um, and, and we joke about it in uh, modern craft circles as the Christian bashing phase.
3: Mm-hmm. This
2: is the time that the new people to paganism enter where they have to say everything that's horrible about Christianity and how they will never do it and they will never touch it and so on and so forth. And that's, OK, that's fine. It's a necessary part of the process. But the problem comes when you get a bunch of people together that are in that phase and they trauma bond because Mm. going through Christianity for the vast majority of people is traumatic. Um, It is abusive Um, and it's like being brainwashed. It's like being in a cult and there is a process to get out of it. But if you're not, you can get stuck there in the Mm. Christian bashing or the rejection phase, especially if everyone around you is also in that that spot, because you're just going around reinforcing each other, which is helpful through that process of of changing your worldview. But there are other ways to go about it, and you spend too much time there, and everything becomes exaggerated, because again, it's the it's the echo chamber, it's the constant reinforcement, and especially in Uh, fighting the programming of cults and fighting the brainwashing techniques of cults and going through the process of waking up and realizing that there's a whole world out there that you didn't know about there's all of this stuff that you were unaware of that was kept from you you get really angry and you need that anger match every time to reject a piece of that worldview And so if you find a thing, and you can't get angry enough about it, usually that process of reinforcement, you'll all escalate together until it's something you can get angry enough about to reject quickly and change your worldview. Because we we all need emotional components to change our core beliefs, even if we can logically be like, I don't like that, and I don't want to think that. we got to go through the emotional process to do it. So. I'm not surprised that we are back to communion is cannibalism and vampirism. Um, I've heard all sorts of weird things about Christianity that, again, they spiral off into these mm-hmm. extreme things. And, you know, the analogy doesn't always <clears throat> extend that far. Things mm-hmm. don't always go that way.
0: Yeah. I mean, the the Catholics do talk about transubstantiation when uh, mm-hmm. in connection with the Eucharist, which is to them literally changing the wafer into the body of Christ and the wine into the blood of Christ. Um, but I mean, it's still
1: not the actual blood and body. So, you know, I can't hear you. But
2: what if it is?
1: Oh, there you go. Um, yeah,
2: yeah. And cannibalism is eating the same species. But the whole point of Christ being Christ, Christos, is that he's a transformed God and full of the option of salvation and the choice of salvation, which is a core part of of Christian belief that you get to make this choice. You get to decide what happens. And so you're not a Christos So eating another Christos is not cannibalism. You're a person who Mm. is seeking salvation and communion with God. So consuming God, God eating, God drinking, is not cannibalism or vampirism because you're not feeding on or eating the same. Mm. Christ is something else.
0: You know, I mean, it is all about taking the energy of divinity into your own, own body, uh, which is what we do with the Red Mill. I mean, the way I do it, I, I call down the goddess into the wine, the god into the bridge, being representation of the, the grape and the grain, and then I'll take that into myself. I'll take their energy into me. And it's exactly the same process.
2: I don't know. I would say that the vast majority of witches do not word it as eating the body of such and such God, God or drinking the blood of such and such God. And that's an important point in Christian theology. So that's their thing and how they view it. Um, we ask the gods to bless food, to mm. bestow their divine blessing. And then we eat that. It's not the same as eating the mm. body of, however, uh, the mythos of john barleycorn and many of the other harvest gods you know that is eating the body of the god the god is the grain itself the Mm. life spark within that grain and the magic of that grain to transform into so many things and be you know so supportive of life in so many ways But the food is the seed, is the food, is the beer, is the magic growing bread. You know, part of the reason bread and wine are so important when it comes to the food used for sharing with gods or or spirits is because it's alive. Bread grows. You know, wine is clearly alive. You can watch it dance and bubble and do things. And that's because yeast is alive. But... And our ancestors were not necessarily worshipping yeast and a little too small to see. They were worshipping the grain that the yeast was on because mm. that was the life sustaining thing that was also, you know, it, it grew and it, it made more of itself and it died, but sowed itself into that renewal cycle and the sun and all of that sort of thing. So there is an aspect there of direct God eating slash God drinking because it's still the same thing even though that's not necessarily the terminology we use when we're talking about um, things like hoozle and red meal and and bloat. uh, Blessing is not necessarily coming to be an embodiment in something because Mm -hmm. the embodiment starts at the beginning. It is made out of the grain. The grain is the body uh, mm. John Barleycorn of of Freud of the god of the field, of of the Onesis, um, whoever in there. And then when we get to the point where like we've made it into bread, we've made it into wine, then we're often like, hey, can you bless this? Because divinity is eternal. That's part of the, the mystery of the whole cycle is the seed is the life is the plant is the seed is the grain, so on and so forth. So we may have a slightly different take on it, but we're, we have similar practices.
0: Yeah, yeah. Let me try that again. Schrodinger's cats um, said God eating was important for the Hittites. Um, They saw the blessing of the God on the food as the God itself possessing the food or drink. Mm.
1: Yeah. I'm
0: wondering if there's any way to move this heart, because it keeps getting in the way of the text.
2: (laughs) It's not, unfortunately. I hate that. I wish they would put it up at the top of the
1: Mm. the
3: box
2: instead of the bottom where it's over the new messages that come in. fun, fun.
1: So, you know, um,
2: again, I don't think... I think your point is valid in that pagans are doing similar things, if not the same thing. And a lot of it's going to be worldview and a lot of it's going to be opinion on what's happening. But I mean, those are the differentiations in culture and religion. You know, over here it's transubstantiation and the literal um, body and blood of Christ. I I grew up with a Catholic friend. And uh, when I went to, mass with her on Sundays, you know, my favorite joke was, well, how many crackers do you have to eat to get a whole Jesus? (laughs) You know, (laughs) the priest would would laugh and kind of glower at me, but (laughs) it's one of those things that that becomes um, interesting questions, because that's not part of your theology, it's not part of your worldview that that's how that works. You know, if if I was within that Catholic religion, I probably wouldn't be making that joke. Mm. But as a pagan, you know, if, if this is a finite being with a literal body, there's an eventual max. My gods don't work that way. My, my gods are, you know, grain itself, which, like, there's not a finite max of that because it's ever reproducing. So You can't ever, mm. like, Eat a whole froy. Not that there was ever a finite container for froy like that. That's kind of a weird concept.
0: So.
2: <laughs> <laughs> also, complete other tangent.
0: <laughs> forever growing. I mean, we can get. We could also get into the topic of the gods eating the gods. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm. Oh yeah. Reading Stephen Fry's book at the moment, Mythos. Um, getting into the Greek stuff, and I mean, Kronos eating his own children. Um, even a uh, case of uh, Zeus um, turning into a serpent to trap. I can't remember the name now. It was the she goat that um, kind of raised him on the, on the Island somewhere, but he ate her. And then later on, he had a splitting headache and uh, her face just cracked open his skull. And Athene was born yeah. uh, from inside him. And the, the she has always been inside him ever since. So, you yeah. know, all yeah. eating aspects.
2: All eating aspects. Mm-hmm. Kronos eating his children, though, um, because everybody in there is immortal and eternal. Nothing happens mm-hmm. to them. They don't get digested yeah. or anything. Uh, you know, they come out later and they're fine. Um, it's mm-hmm. just like putting them away somewhere. Swallows <laughs> them whole. Uh, that's why, you know... Uh, Jupiter or Zeus can get away because uh, Gaia gives him a rock swaddled like a baby and he just tosses it back and thinks, Mm. that's it. That's Zeus. Good. Next. Mm. (laughs) Um, But there's also um, like in uh, the Eddas, there's the story of Kvasir who is, is the magic being and he's slaughtered and his blood is what makes mead the meat of poetry so yeah there are all these aspects and and there's also um i don't know if there's eating involved but the violence of dismemberment and using body parts when Immer is killed and then all of his parts are used to make the world you know his the inside of his skull becomes the dome of the sky his eyebrows become the boundaries of midgard his bones and his flesh are used to build the land, and his blood becomes the ocean, and so on and so forth. So, in mythology, and mythology is not religion, uh, there are lots of points and, and evidence of using the physical body as an analogy for things that we, in our modern sensibilities, can find rather distasteful. It, it sounds mm. gory it sounds gross, Um, and especially when it comes to things like drinking the blood of a a specific divinity or something like that, these are things that we recoil from. And I'm not saying our ancestors were regularly drinking other people's blood or anything of that sort, not at all, but that these analogies of the physical body were much more common in ancient times than they are now. And under, probably understood in a different way because we have a very different um, worldview in our modern times. We're very separated from deaths. We're very separated from the realities of disease and maintaining a physical body. In our modern Western worlds, we have robust medical care. I mean, leaving aside the issues of, of healthcare care access and all of that compared to, you know, the early 1st and 2nd century, there's a lot more available. We have a better understanding of what's going on. So we aren't nearly as in close contact with the uh, graphicness of the human body, except our own, because we still have a body to experience. And many people um, are pretty grossed out by their own bodies in a lot of ways. They're not really okay with many of the functions and realities of the physical form. So that all lends into a, a core piece of uh, foundational worldview that is most likely different from our ancestors, who we are reading their sim- symbolic stories, their, their uh, morality uh, as they pass this stuff down we already have that, ooh, body's gross thing, mm-hmm. as opposed to bodies are part of life and therefore can serve as rich places for analogy and metaphor.
0: Yeah. yeah I mean, the bodily fluids always get me. I mean, I have absolutely no problem with it. But just I mean, I'm talking about witches. There's so many You kind of turn their nose up and go, no, I'm not going to do that. (laughs)
2: It's
0: just a natural part of yourself.
2: (laughs) I mean, I remember when I first came into the craft, it was pretty well expected that everybody put blood in the wine and everybody drank from the same cup. Mm. Uh, That changed very quickly with the AIDS epidemic and all of that sort of thing, and people being reasonable about drinking one another's blood because of disease. But it was still part of craft practice. Yeah, um, It's still in the lore. And not, not like eons ago, within my lifetime.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's actually part of demonolatry. Um, generational, traditional demonolatry, they, they do um, put a drop of blood, the, the group put a drop of blood in the wine, and they all share it. So mm-hmm. it's still a practice today.
2: I remember... You know, offerings of cakes and offerings of bread were made with blood. There was Mm -hmm. a drop of blood put into the meal, um, you know, and added in there. So that's not that long ago practice or understanding. I I think the modern concern over safety is very reasonable. I mean, the more you know, the better you do, of course. But
3: Mm
2: -hmm. I don't think it's it's something that's been separated out as that's a thing Christians do but a th- not a thing that pagans do. I think that's a thing humans do.
1: Mm.
0: Yeah. Uh, Shonin's Cats asked um, some tantric deities cause accidents to cut a partic- practitioner and, and I'm just going to do this to get uh, get let me try that again uh some tantric deities cause accidents to cut a practitioner and get some blood any thoughts on that i haven't heard of that myself
2: i don't know about tantric deities but being a crafter we have a saying that it's not uh, alive until you bleed on it when we talk about the things that we physically make you know whether it's Mm. woodworking or blacksmithing or sewing or leather working, or or beading, I've had sacred beading projects and I managed to stab the shit out of my finger. (laughs) But it's not not alive until you bleed on it, it's not complete, it's not a sacred object until you give of yourself. And you can do it on purpose if you want, uh, which some crafters do purposely, uh, ceremonially, uh, sometimes at the beginning, Usually not at the end because somewhere in the middle you hurt yourself and you end up bleeding on it. So Mm -hmm. that has been, I don't know, a folk belief. And I find that amongst guilds of crafters, not with a capital C, not witchcraft crafters, but just, you know, people who are blacksmiths, people who are leather workers, people who do beading, whatever the craft is. That's kind of a thing. It's not... It's not complete. The gods didn't bless it. You didn't bless it. You know, uh, sometimes it's the the shop goblins take their due or something like that. But there's lots Mm. of different, I would say, folk explanations for this process. And um, my experience is that it is different when it's a sacred piece or a magical piece or Something like that. You know, I'm making this as a, a holy gift uh, to another magical practitioner, or something. Or this is just a thingy with no sacred relation. Not that I do that much kind of crafting anymore because I don't have that much time. But the, the sacred stuff gets blood on. Want to or not, it happens. Mm. And um, I, I find that I find that even, um, you know, there was a thing about uh, in my grandmother's quilting guild. Little old Christian ladies meeting in a Methodist church um, when they would finish up somebody's quilts who had died. Everybody would just bring hydrogen peroxide with them because everyone was going to bleed all over this quilt.
3: Mm.
2: Because it was for... The lady who had passed away and she was dead and they would even talk about well you know that's what the dead do after they die so I, I think that's a again a common human thing
0: you know you mentioned that I've heard about it in terms of working with the fae or the nature spirits um, You kind of walking through a forest and you get your finger pricked or um, your hair gets stuck in a branch and gets pulled out um, you know, as a kind of offering thing to the spirits themselves they're, they're kind of taking it I've uh, heard
2: of that but that's not an experience I've had but I was also mm-hmm. raised by people who taught me to make offerings at trailheads and that sort of thing so
0: yeah yeah, and that's usually something I consciously do mm-hmm.
2: um,
0: and I don't get my hair pulled out either that's, not much there. <laughs>
2: and still get snagged. I don't know. I, I I go back again thinking about my my friend I grew up with who was Catholic. I went to a lot of Catholic mass because um, we were usually hanging out Saturday night, and then Sunday morning after spending the night at her house, we'd go to mass together. And I lived on the other side of the church from her, and then her parents would take me home after church. But mm. you know, um, there's an unconscious process in uh, for Catholics that becomes rope movement of the body. You enter the church, you know, you clean your hands at the baptismal, and then you kneel and you pray before you enter the pew and so on and so forth. And there are things that are done so quick by the time you've been doing it for your life that you don't even think about it. But Hmm. there are moments of prayer, there are moments of connection. i have that in my life not in churches obviously but in my churches when i go out into the woods when i go to you know talk to the trees when i go to harvest herbs i pray and it's mm. it's it's ingrained and so quick sometimes i will be mid-sentence with the person <laughs> and i will stop and and touch a tree and mumble a prayer and then continue the sentence and they're like what
3: but it's that,
2: sort of, it's that sort of automatic return, I think, that becomes really important in making those connections and and reinforcing them.
0: All right, should we take a break? Oh, my. Um,
2: We've been talking for 45 minutes already.
0: We have. It's very quiet in the chat, apart from trolling as cats. Um, but please ask more questions. Um, we'll... Uh, come back after the chat and answer them. Look after the chat, after the break, and answer them. <laughs> All right, so don't go anywhere. We'll be back in a minute.
1: or five. Stick around. Welcome back to Into the Wildwood. And
0: we're talking about uh, dining with divinity. That was the term he used. <laughs>
2: I like alliteration.
1: Yeah, it was a good one. I liked it. All right, so where to from here?
2: I don't know. <laughs> um, there's a dumb supper. Uh, that's a. Oh, yeah common practice among neo-pagans these days, usually around so-in, but it's a meal with your ancestors. You fix food, uh, generally ones they liked, and then you set them a place at the table and you sit down and you eat with them. Some people uh, like to keep it silent because the dead can't speak the same as us, and so they have a quiet meal with no talking. Uh, Some people like to tell stories of the ancestors that they invite to the table. It just kind of depends on your your practice and what you're doing. If you're alone, it's really a nice meditation to keep silent and listen to the ancestors during this meal. Uh, But it can also be a really transformative experience in a group. Also to have um, a whole ritual that is silent. Long ago, early on in my days, I was uh, joined a coven for a in supper. And there was no talking from the time you showed up at the covenstead. You greeted each other in silence. You left in silence. The entire thing. There was no talking. And uh, no no ASL for me. That was (laughs) something that came up a couple of times. Um, So, and, And that was an interesting... Transformative experience. It was very powerful. Something if you get together with a group, give it a try. It's really a neat experience to to go through that. Mm. Um, and there are others that may uh, call the ancestors or call certain divinities, and then have uh, the quiet time. The prohibition on talking for the meal. Uh, We like to have an ancestor hoozle around Yule as part of our tradition where during that symbol or that hoozle, we only speak of our beloved dead. That's what all of the, the stories are. That's what all of the talk is focused on. And we, you know, every time we tell a story, we pass a horn around or, um, In times of colds and sniffles, because it's around Yule in the middle of winter for us. So uh, often everybody gets their own cup of warm beverage. Uh, You know, somebody will take the floor, tell their story, so on and so forth. And at the end of the story, hail, whatever their name is, and they pour an offering into the offering bowl and they give them some meat and some bread into the offering bowl. And the whole time we're all sitting around, we're all eating and drinking throughout the whole evening. You know, there mm. are cheeses and breads and fruits and that sort of thing. And we will select from what is on the table for everyone to eat from what we think the particular ancestor would like and put that into the offering bowl when we tell their stories. So that's mm. another way to, <coughs> to dine with the, the non-corporeal.
0: I was actually thinking about uh, um, defining the difference between when you can and cannot eat the food. Um, It basically comes down to you prepare food, that food is then shared. Uh, Once it's given to somebody, it's theirs. Don't
2: eat
0: Um, eat off of somebody
2: else's plate.
0: Yeah. Um, Or if you have um, shared a meal and then put it on the altar... Um, for the, the for divinity or whoever to feed from you know and then the next day don't take it off and eat it um it was theirs it's not yours <laughs>
3: so,
0: <laughs> that's probably the defining defining point
2: say um, we don't put things on the altar to set. Um, mm-hmm. If we're going to have a meal with them, they get set at the same table with us, or the offering bowl was in the center of the table, That's their plate, so to speak. And when the meal is finished, we figure they already ate, just I like mean. we did. And then we dispose of the offering outside, um, or the remains of the offering, I should say. But if we put something on the altar, sometimes like um, when we have family over for holidays, uh, I always feed our ancestors regardless of who the family is, whether they know what's going on. Um, everybody in our our little family that lives in our household knows whose ancestor, which ancestors they're in charge of feeding at, at holidays, right? Mm-hmm. And you grab your plate and you fix a plate for the ancestors before you go through the line and fix your plate when it's a big thing. Those we may put on the altar simply because there are not enough seats in our house for everyone one of those thanksgivings where some people are sitting on the couch and there's a weird card table in the den and (laughs) some people are eating in the kitchen at that time Mm. we'll put stuff on the altar um but then you know after the party when we're cleaning up and everybody's going home we consider they've eaten and we Mm. take the remains of that offering and and dispose of it
0: so Mm. Because, I mean, a lot of the stuff that I do is solo. It's just me. Um, So if I do do a red meal, I'll do the red meal, and I'll probably leave it on my altar overnight and then dispose of it the next morning time. Um, Yeah.
2: If I make... The things I leave overnight on my altar are things that are offerings, often when I'm not eating with them, Uh, especially Mm. when I go to the altar in the morning... And I do my usual water, and sometimes I'll ask for candles. Sometimes they ask for incense. I don't do that every day. And sometimes they're like, "Yo, I want corn cakes," or (laughs) "Give me that beer that I like." You know, I don't drink beer. I don't eat corn either. I'm allergic to it. Or, you know, I want you to make sweet cornbread, but you need to make it with some tallow or something like that. Those are very common requests among my ancestors. So Mm. during the day. I'll procure whatever that is, or I'll make it, and then I'll put that on the altar for them. And that usually stays um, sometimes overnight, sometimes a couple of days. Sometimes it, you know, I'll go to take it off the altar and it's pretty clear it's they're not done yet.
3: Kind yeah, of thing.
2: Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So that stays a little while before it's removed from the altar and and the mm-hmm. remains are disposed of. I'm trying to say remains instead of offering, because to a lot of people, that's still the same thing, but it—I don't know—I can tell that it's it's dried up, it's depleted, it's yeah. it's been consumed, and what's and now there's leftovers, <laughs> not leftovers as in you could eat them, remains.
0: Mm, no, I think I think I think more people are using the term remains, uh, even in like spell work with candle uh, candle remains or ritual remains or certain things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Solomon asked, what is the difference between a dumb supper and a normal offering on the everyday? Yeah, well, a dumb supper is just done during uh, Samhain. I don't think there's any other time we do that.
2: part of a tradition that uh, did it at Candlemas also. Samhain mm. was seen as like the opening of the Dead Time, and Candlemas was seen as the closing of the Dead Time, and so those were two very important ancestor holidays. And so we had a supper with them both times. Dumb supper usually refers to a group meal where you also invite your ancestors. You often set them at the same table as you. So there will be chairs next to you that don't have a corporeal body in them with plates full of food. And dumb refers to not talking, silent. Mm. Um, and But that term has also kind of morphed over into including uh, group meals that also involve telling stories about the ancestors although Mm. i don't know that that's always called the dumb supper but it usually gets lumped in there and then offerings on the everyday do not usually include an entire meal setting a whole place for them Um, usually it's on the altar and it's not necessarily a big group activity it's often just the one person in the house who maintains the altars
0: Mm. Um, also asked uh, do you throw out that food Um, okay this is a question that a lot of people have and it's one I had for years and years what do you do with the remains Um, and I've, I've come to see it as kind of like a progressive thing so first option is Leave it at crosswalk, well, depending on what you're doing, actually. Leave it at the crossroads or leave it out in your garden or something like that. And um, It's usually consumed by the wildlife. Um, another option is to bury it or, depending on what it is, throw it in a river. Um, but not everybody has that option. So then it becomes less and more. Just kind of decrease it. So if you have a balcony... And you have lots and lots and lots and lots of plant pots. You can use those. The problem is with you can't pots,
2: concentrate food like that. I know. In a, I know. In a pot, you'll kill yeah. the plant.
0: I know. And if you're doing something once a month, maybe you, you it just becomes way way too much. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's water, or, you know, not, obviously put that in the pot. But if it's foodstuffs and all that that, that type of thing. Not really. And then you have to also bear in mind there are some foods and drinks that um, pouring on the ground don't actually help the ground at all. Um, So you've got to bear that in mind. So if you don't have those options, then what do you do? You can burn it,
1: as I think it's called a votive offering, isn't it? Votive offering. Yeah. Um,
0: But you can't do that. I think the last course of action is the bin.
2: I would never put it in the trash. Um, so I now live in a house and I have a garden and a compost and that's where all my offerings mm. go. They go out to the compost. Um, if, if they've been offered inside, if they're like in a bloat bowl or, or something like that, they go out by the tree where we make our offerings. And I'm sure the wildlife eat it. We do our best to keep our dog out of it. Um, and But I also like feed the squirrels and that sort of thing, too, in addition to that food. Because that food isn't full of vitality anymore. Mm. So there's kind of a, a balance there. Um, but when I lived in an apartment, I would make the effort to take every offering out on a walk and put it somewhere somewhere appropriate Um, in in a biodegradable way. I didn't leave any kinds of dishes or anything behind. I tried not to make it obvious. Um, I was very cautious about what I was offering so that I wasn't like taking a big steak and and bones and leaving it out somewhere where it could cause harm. So Mm. there was a lot of um, things like cakes and breads and that sort of stuff or uh, veggies very common, I would offer. A bag of frozen peas uh, was a real standard offering in my apartment. Because mm. it it made my ancestors and my gods happy and it was very safe for me to take out and then give to the wildlife. So, um, but that's my personal thing. I'm not okay with putting it in the bin and, and putting it in the trash stream. I feel that's, it doesn't work for me. So I know what mm-hmm. it is to, to live in an apartment where you don't have a yard and you don't have a garden. I didn't have any houseplants at that time either. Um, I did not have a balcony. I had no outside space in that apartment and no east-facing windows or anything like that. But I went on a lot of walks mm-hmm. and, and made use of city parks and, and that sort of thing. And again, it's about, you know, considering what's happening here and thinking through the whole thing. You can't just take a a paper plate with a steak and mashed potatoes on it and go set it outside your door or something like that. That doesn't work Mm. in the city. You know, will attract rodents, all of that sort of thing. But I I would say um, burying, composting, returning to the earth, returning to uh, the wildlife somehow in there is what you're going for. However you accomplish that back into the cycle. And if you have like community compost um, or something like that, that would also be ideal. It doesn't have to be a personal thing. If it's returned to the earth, you know, because this is food that comes from the earth. So you return it to the earth to feed the cycle, to complete the cycle somehow. Um, We've done that like at large pagan gatherings. You know, um, there's 400 people. Yes, You can get them all to compost. You can, you can get them all to, to properly place their offerings and, and that sort of thing, even in a hotel. So it's mm-hmm. just thinking about where that goes. And speaking of water, I make offerings of water every day. And when the next day comes and I want fresh water on the altar... I just pour that out into my little um, watering can that I use to water the house plants or sometimes mm. directly into the house plants, depending on where they are, what's going on. So,
3: mm.
2: And I don't think there's anything wrong with that, giving that water to the plants. I do kind of view it as blessed water, but yeah. also depleted water in another way. Um, it's not the only water I give my plants, they won't live it's not mm. enough but i do also you know ask the the spirits of the house and the gods and everybody i'm offering to to bless the water and bless the house mm. and everything through that process
0: it's kind of how i see it it's been transformed and given it to my clients will help them somewhat somehow yeah, yeah. um actually an interesting thing um in the Hindu community, uh, you know, all the offerings that they do and such things um, during pujas, um, there's actually, I can't remember, I'm sure it was here in South Africa, actually. There's actually somebody who goes round to all the houses and collects the offerings mm-hmm. and then goes and disposes of them in the river mm-hmm. uh, for, for everybody who can't, you know, can't, uh, they've got work to do or they're disabled or... You know, they just can't get there themselves. So somebody actually goes and does that service for them, which I thought was quite interesting. Yeah. So absolute last resort, then Some people argue that it's okay to do that because eventually it gets to the to the Earth because it gets put in the... I don't know what they do with it. I know here it goes into dumps. Yeah, it goes into landfills yeah, and it will get, eventually gets back into the earth, but in some form or some some form or function.
2: <clears throat> Leftover is remains; it's no longer food, but it's mm. still something that was part of a sacred process, and you still need reverence all mm. the way through. Just because the offering is complete, the reverence for your participation in the cycle of food and life sustainment doesn't stop. Mm. So, yeah, I don't, I, I can't get behind putting it in a plastic bag and sending it to the dump. I think mm. that is a lack of reverence. I don't think it does end up returning to the earth because of the plastic and, mm. and all of the other problems with landfills and dumps and that sort of thing and i don't want that to be part of my web that i don't want that to be part of my cycle of offering so you know and back when we lived in an apartment we lived up on the second floor no outside space no houseplants and i had two children under 3 i i know it's work <laughs> to to take this out to go outside but i would take the kids on walks load them up and a little sling and a little stroller, and off we'd go with a weirdly napkin-wrapped pile of old cakes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, all, all those little old ladies at the park feeding the ducks—they might just be witches. <laughs> I'm kidding.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. Actually, talking about that, um, when we get to the park, um, what do you normally do with the, the remains? For um, some people, will bury it. I normally put it next to it at the foot of a tree.
2: Usually, I put it at the foot of a tree or a bush, somewhere that's out of the way of, of people traffic, somewhere mm. where I think squirrels or other wildlife could make use of it. I break it up into small parts so it's not just, you know, a chunk of cake or something like that. Scatter it about, um, usually at the base of a tree, sometimes up in a tree if it's not too high i'm not like climbing trees just like crooks and things that are up high of course not mm-hmm. if it looks like it would hurt the tree if it rotted there or something like that and trees i think are good cuz they're huge right a plant mm-hmm. that size getting that much of something that's might not be good for it that has butter and fat and sugar in it or something like that isn't going to hurt it But Mm. if I put that same amount at the bottom of a daisy that's this big, that's different. Mm. So, yeah. And when I leave offerings in parks and that sort of thing, I also always offer water. Not something that came off my altar, but water I specifically brought to say, hey, thanks for taking care of this. Mm. And I always give that to the land, to the tree, to the bush, to the whatever, wherever I'm leaving the offering. Pour out some water and say, you know, thank you so much for taking care of this and helping me in this
0: process. Yeah. And I suppose if any strangers come up asking what you're doing, you can always just say, I'm I'm feeding the wildlife. Um, They'll probably go away then. Because not everybody wants to say, "I'm, I'm getting rid of my... the remains of my offerings to my gods and goddesses Mm. (laughs) so overwhelmed although although the person might run away very quickly but that's okay Mm.
2: true but yeah I I always made it a point to to go out on a walk and return the offerings Mm. somehow and Mm. um, the thing I would say absolutely never do that I've heard people say is flush it down the toilet Never, never, never would I do that. I've heard people justify that toilets are like rivers in your house. Is that Mm. really your idea of a river? I mean, that just, that weirds me out.
0: I think that's gotten a bit confused with things like, um, there's the egg limpia. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of practitioners will flush the egg down the toilet afterwards, the, the yolk. Um, getting rid of the negative energy. Oh, um, uh, well. Or some kind of curse that you're doing, or something like that. Um, because it's seen as this flushing, this flowing water away from your house. And I think that's been confused with, um, you know, getting rid of uh, remains of offerings. It's a completely different thing. but you know.
2: Yeah. And just that phrase, getting rid of, not um, doing that. You're returning.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: You're not trying to get it out of your life. You're not trying to get rid of something that's that's gross and terrible. Yes, don't eat it because yes, it is kind of like poop in that respect, but not in the put it down the toilet respect.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Uh so we we'll have your lady Love it. Uh Craig is here. Hello, Craig. Got you oh. to make it. Um, and Craig said, it's essential that the Lua in Voodoo are fed. Each has a preference. I think that's all traditions. All of our spirits like to be fed, and they often have their preferences.
2: Yeah, they do. They often have preferences. Mm-hmm. I think once you get into a relationship with a spirit or a divinity, you will learn about their preferences whether that's some kind of direct communication where you you know you have a sense uh through one of your astral senses that you need to change something or it's a good feeling or it's a bad feeling or you see or hear or smell positive things or negative things or um they communicate with you in other ways you will suddenly come across a video on YouTube that tells you all about the foods that Hecate likes. You will suddenly find yourself reading a book, and here's this chapter on all of these foods that sound mouthwateringly delicious to you. That sort of stuff comes up, too, where it just comes into your life, and you have to consider that, Oh, maybe I should, I should share these foods, or I need to get that drink, or whatever it is. So there are many ways that they communicate preferences. If you're not in a tradition that's already figured that out for you and tells you what's what, which is also really nice.
0: And mm. I, I know we're talking about dining, which involves um, drinks and food, um, but I mean when we're, when we're talking about offerings, that can come in many forms. I mean my my favorite tale is always the one when I was work, working with Clonek, and uh, he asked for my old left shoe. Um, which was totally random. I didn't understand why, but he got my old left shoe.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's like that happens.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, house spirits and, and stuff, they usually like sparkly things. Uh, some of them like toys. Oh, yeah. Right?
2: Yeah. I've had mm. a housewife that, like, you know, uh, those machines that you put a quarter in and you get some random little piece of plastic junk. No. Mm. Oh. That house bit would go crazy when we brought those home. Just (laughs) happiness, happiness, happiness. And you didn't (laughs) open it until you got home. You opened it right in front of their house and gave Mm. them whatever was in this thing. Yeah, they absolutely loved all the plastic junk. But that's what they wanted.
3: (laughs)
0: Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Mm. Uh, Salam's son asked... um, do spirits or beings we would dine with or give offerings to experience through our eating as well? Uh, kind of like the idea that your experience is the offering and the gratitude. I've heard this before. I'm not quite sure about it myself.
2: I've never had that experience, that that's the way it works. works.
0: Uh, uh, the only I've times... Of... Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I've, I've heard a lot of people actually say that what they do is they'll sit down with um, a drink that the spirit likes or something, and they'll consume it, and through that consumption, they it, it becomes an offering to the spirit. Uh, i would only I would only see that working if the if you had invoked um, through possession.
2: I say, the only time I've heard that sort of thing working is when someone is uh, being ridden or possessed. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the spirit is somehow occupying their physical body for the experience. And the times that I see that where that's not a purposeful thing, you know, because sometimes the, the process is, I'm in, the, in this ritual, I specifically let you into my body to do things with the body. You know, that's a pretty common thing. And sometimes that involves eating and drinking or smoking or other things that you can only do with a physical body. But I've also seen people um, that have an incubus or a succubus that has taken over and attached themselves so deeply that this is the, the dual experience, the host person the person mm. originally with the body is having, because by the time it gets to that point, it's not real clear who's in charge of the body anymore.
1: Mm. Yeah.
0: Actually, that's the topic we could maybe talk about one week, Incubus and Succubus. Because oh, the information that's out there at the moment is quite interesting. Um, Tronius cats, there's a goddess associated with the sink. I've heard some people pray for her in order to dispose of liquid offerings in the sink.
1: Cool. You heard of what, that one? I've heard
2: various divinities and spirits associated with all sorts of things like that. Sinks mm. and toilets and the back of toilets and and that sort of stuff. Which culture this is, is coming,
0: that? This is coming to the goddess or the god Bob, yes. And <laughs>
2: Schrodinger's cats, how do you ch- keep changing your picture when you post? You've had three different pictures in the chat.
0: <laughs> yeah, we don't know if the cat's alive or dead. That's the problem. <laughs> um, Craig, uh, I've just read a very old book that suggests that incubus and succubus are made of subtle, subtle substance, so a subtle diet is required um so the smell of the food or drink is enough to feed them
1: okay um, uh, cat. yeah sorry how
2: Culture is that from craig because i'm curious that sounds
0: neat yeah yeah uh schrodinger's cat said i think she's roman the <laughs> goddess of the sink
1: All strange things coming up at the moment.
2: (laughs) Every culture that actively works with spirits or divinity or, you know, whatever we're going to class them as, adapts. They have to adapt, you know, to whatever the circumstances of their people are.
0: I suppose when, when things like sanitary were invented, um, you know, that was a long time ago. That wasn't during the Industrial Revolution. Um, I suppose they they could have come up with uh, something in regards to a goddess of the sink
1: and the pipes and the sewerage and things like that.
2: In an animist worldview, everything has a spirit. Yeah, everything is is divine and animated and embodied and inhabited. Yeah.
1: I'm trying to think what that series
0: was and cannot remember the name of it. Um, But they were were talking about it was the Romans um, invading uh, Britain or something, and they were talking about their gods, and they have a a god of shoes and a god of laces and a god of this and a god of that. Yeah. So it
1: kind of makes sense, actually.
0: All right.
2: That kind of granularity, I think, is present in many, many cultures. Mm. Well, I think so. Unless anybody else has any questions or subjects they want to talk about or anything like that related to offerings, food, spirits, gods. We did say dining with divinity, but mostly that was because of fun alliteration. So.
0: It's the easiest way to encompass all of it.
2: And Lee doesn't like it when I try to name a show that's got 20 words in it. <laughs> Which, I don't blame him, it's not a good name.
0: No, no, We're no, going no,
2: to no, talk no. about offerings and food and drink with spirits or other non-corporeal entities that may involve...
0: You, you usually <laughs> tell me to just make it a single word, that's it. and. It... <laughs> <laughs>
2: Early on in the Black Hat chat, I came up with some ridiculous ones that were like, <laughs> <laughs> comma, 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 etc., comma, 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 etc."
0: cetera. <laughs> uh, Craig said it's a, it's a Christian outlook on what the uh, succubus is. Mm.
1: Christian. You said old book.
2: Like 13th century? 17th? Post enlightenment? It um,
0: posted wasn't the Bible, was it? That's an old book.
2: The <laughs> Sinistrari of Amino. Cool. More things to look at?
1: My chat just got disconnected. Oh, okay, I'm back again. Oh, okay. First edition, 17th century. Okay.
0: All right. I think we're, we're starting to talk rubbish and uh, ramble now. We've, we've spoken in circles about uh, divining with divinity. Yes. To.
2: Starting to. Uh-huh. All of those mm. tangents earlier about things.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> those are tangents, not ramblings. Yes.
2: What is the difference? <laughs> I don't
0: know. <laughs> uh, uh, Kerry said Mary Meach. Um, oh, solemn and prompt. Make a tiny cookbook specific to one's personal spirit's tastes.
1: That could be interesting. That'd be interesting. Mm. My spirit cookbook. Okay. So we'll see you
0: next week. We are doing the astrology forecast for August. Yeah. Uh, you believe, believe it's August. I can't believe it's. Not at all. All right, so we'll see you guys next week. Have a good one.
1: Until then, hi Bye.
0: Thank you for joining us in the Wildwood. Meet us again next week for another episode. And don't forget to check out our website at intothewildwood.com. That's Wildwood with a Y. And if you would like to support us, you can leave a donation on the website.